we did this verse last time. It was a few weeks ago. And we did 8.8 eight and 8.9. Eight and we had a lot of discussion about signs and wonders. And we're going to have more discussion today. And we're going to, I hope, gain a better understanding of the significance of signs that happened that were legitimate ones and how the false and the counterfeit are in competition with what God has done. And I'll show you some material and we'll have, I think, an interesting discussion. Most of us have come in contact with people who claim that you can learn how to do signs and wonders if you just get the right technique or have enough faith or whatever. So, let's begin with prayer and then we'll start in on the text. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Acts that reveals to us your mighty works and how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, help us to continue to do our part to fulfill that last part, the uttermost part of the world. May we keep confessing the gospel. Help us to learn and understand, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we did verse 9. I'll read it, and then we'll go to verse 10. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So we talked about this a few weeks ago when I was last teaching Sunday school. And as I pointed out then, Deuteronomy 18 forbade the Jews from doing this sort of thing or listening to anybody who did. Okay? I also want you to see here that magic was an art that was practiced. Later, when the gospel came to Ephesus, the people there burned their books. What were those books? They were about the magic arts. Okay? And so there was a way to learn how to tap into this world of the spirits and the and also just sleight of anti-magic. But this was all forbidden to the people of God. And so here's a man named Simon, who later in church history was called Simon Magus. I mentioned, I think, that some of the early church fathers said that he was the founder of a Gnostic sect uh, that bore his name. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't. But it was said to be true in church history. Now let's go to verse 10. And it said, And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished, that's going to be an important word, them with his magic arts. So this word in the Greek, giving attention, is the same word used in Acts 8.6, and the word means holding to. So the crowd responded to Stephen, who was a gospel preacher. 
And when Stephen was preaching, God did things. And there were people being delivered and there were signs done. But they were done by God through his power in the context of the gospel being preached. So one of my better commentaries says this, that when the Simon is here, there was what he called competition for conversion. Oh, yeah, see, these Christians, they have their God, but I have science too. And there was a pulling back and forth about who was going to be followed. In both cases, there were supernatural signs. But Christ crucified was the message of Stephen. He preached Christ. Simon preached himself. And he was happy to be called the great power of God. Now, when I did a lot of work on this and early on, when we started CIC in 1992, some of my early articles, I dealt with this topic. And back then, I was trying to help charismatic pastors and their followers to embrace the gospel and make that central. And one of the things that I would say to them is that you need to listen to what's being preached. If it's really from God, Christ will be preached. And if it's not, they will preach themselves. And it's interesting if you look at the posters back in those days, now everything comes over to computer. And I'm on an email list of a guy who claims that he has miracle meetings. His name is Todd Bentley. Have you heard him? He's a tattooed preacher. He Literally, he has so many tattoos. When I was a kid, the only time anyone like would be seen like that, they were in the circus. Okay? Literally. Well, now people think it's cool. Well, they're not old enough to remember the circus. And he didn't want to be the tattooed man in the circus. But Todd Bentley is. And I got something, I, an email from him promoting a guy that's going to be with him in one of his meetings now that, down in Mexico. I'm going to read this to you and then pass it around so you can see that the issue between Stephen and Simon is still going on today. We still have the same thing happening. And we need to figure out who is preaching Christ. All right, this guy here is named Doug Addison. Now let me read the little text that came with the email. Doug Addison is a prophetic dream interpreter, speaker, writer, life coach, and stand-up comedian. (laughs) Cover all the bases. It's even more interesting. His high-energy prophetic messages have been shared on television, radio, and the Internet for over a decade. Doug brings laughter, fun, and a unique prophetic style while empowering people 
to transform their lives, discover their destiny. Now listen to this, understand their dreams, tattoos, and piercings. Somebody comes all tattooed, and he tells them the spiritual meaning of it. Doug's positive message is stay with his audiences. Let's pass this around so you can see that I'm not just making this up. Excuse me, Bob. Isn't it in Leviticus where it says don't pierce and tattoo? Well, this sort of thing would have been forbidden under the Old Covenant. But uh, whatever that says about the New Covenant, here's people that evidently look like this Todd Bentley, and some prophet is going to tell them what it means. So they're interpreting signs and uh, what have you. Now, uh, go ahead, Brian. I see the real issue here is that he was tying himself to God. So let me ask you a hypothetical. Say Simon was doing what he was doing, and he did not attach himself to the power of God. Well, it would still be occult, but they all claim that this is from God or some kind of definition of God. Because what other great power is there besides God? Go to the top. Now, we have here with Simon in Samaria in competition with Stephen in the gospel, a little preview of some things that are going to happen later in Acts. Ever since I've been preaching through Luke-Acts, which goes back to the mid, like 2005, I think I started in Luke, one of the things I've been mentioning is that Luke likes to use reviews and previews. Reviews of salvation, so things that happen in Luke remind us of things, for example, about Moses. Like the Mount of Transfiguration is, is a review and a preview. A review because Moses and Elijah are there, and a preview because God said, this is my son, listen to him, which reminds us of Moses' prediction in Deuteronomy 18. And then you have Moses and Elijah disappearing in Christ alone. Well, so here we have what somebody calls a prophetic type scene. This happens here, and it happens again later in Acts, and that's in Acts 14. Now, somebody wants to read that. Brian, you got the mic. Acts 14, 11 to 15. We see a similar thing that happens later. Acts 14. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these, from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
Yeah, God is the creator. So they wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And now we see here in these scenes in Acts something we're supposed to learn. Stephen preached the true power of God would be Christ and the gospel. Simon preached himself as the great power of God. Later, now what happens later would indicate that Asia Minor was full of people who believed this way. And there were a lot of books of magic arts. And it was a common way for them to act and to believe. And so later, Paul and Barnabas could have been Simon if they wanted to. Those crowds wanted to call them the great power of God. And they wanted to be devoted to them like they were gods on earth. And so if Paul and Barnabas had bad motives, they could have taken advantage of this and made themselves a lot of money, which we'll find out is what Simon was interested in. So on the surface, this is an easy way of discerning the difference. I'm telling you, having been a pastor who helped a church go from charismatic to a gospel church and hosted a pastor's meeting, mostly of charismatic pastors, trying my best to uh, help these pastors go from what they had been to the gospel. And to a certain degree, there's a little bit of success, but not in every case. And so I, I understand that we have to help people. And how are they going to discern the difference? Now, a common way that Baptist-type evangelicals have fought this battle over the decades is to say God doesn't do any signs and wonders. All miracles have ceased, and there is no such thing. So therefore, any, any of these are all fake, all counterfeit, all bad. Now, these charismatics absolutely will never listen to that argument. They say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How is it that now God is unable to do miracles? Well, the answer was, well, the canon is complete, so we don't need miracles. Now, I'm not here to promote miracles, but I'm here to say that God can do what he chooses to do on the scene of history. And there's no law of God that says that in a legitimate preaching ministry with the gospel, some person might get healed. What really matters is is the gospel. God can do what he does. I know people get delivered, maybe not with, I don't like to see the manifestations, I've written about that, but if Colossians 1, 13 and 14 are true, every time somebody's converted, they totally escape Satan's kingdom. They're rescued, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. That's a miracle. And so that's not a very effective argument. And what I learned by, by spending so much time helping charismatics, some of whom became good friends and solid in the gospel, was... Go for the issue of the gospel itself. Now, this thing that's going around here with this Doug Addison, who actually claims to 
know what the meaning of tattoos and piercings are? See, what you'll notice, notice all the things that they say about this guy. It doesn't say he is a gospel preacher who preaches Christ and Christ crucified. I've determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Christ crucified. And they don't even talk about that. And so they actually have schools to teach people to do signs and wonders. And that shows that these things are not miracles. They are an art form that can be learned. I wrote an article 20 years ago for CIC called New Age Miracles. And in it, I claim that if you could produce a miracle by some process that can be learned, you don't really have a miracle. You just have a cause and effect going on. When God does a miracle, the only explanation is God did it. And that's what we're going to see become the issue between the difference between Simon and Stephen. Now, what we're going to see here, beloved, is that Simon supposedly comes to the Lord. Okay, it says he believed, and he also was baptized. But he attaches himself to Stephen. We'll see that in a bit. Because he sees whatever Stephen was doing as being something beyond what he did. And he thought Stephen could become his new miracle teacher. Hey, Bob, I think you mean uh, Philip instead of Stephen. That's... Just no, that's right. I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. No, that's all right. All right. Everyone listening. Yeah. You know, I get corrected and it's good. No. I was saying Mark 15, I meant Mark 16. Now I'm saying Stephen and I mean Philip. But when you get over 60, you got to go by what we mean, not what we say. Oh, you do it at 32. Okay. I mean Philip. Thank you, Eric. Everybody, plug in the name Philip. Stephen's already been martyred. He's in heaven with Jesus. All right, Philip. That's a good reading. If you drink coffee, we'd give you some, for sure. Anyhow, um, so he sees in Philip somebody who maybe has an angle that he had never thought of. And what we're going to see is he he thinks, I can learn Philip's version of the magic arts. And we'll see that later when he wants to buy it, to buy the Holy Spirit. So what I did in the 90s to help my pastor friends was I explained that if you can concoct miracles by some process or have a school of prophets and miracle workers, you don't really have any miracles at all. God does what he does. He's sovereign. And I'm not ruling out what he might do sovereignly in the context of the gospel. And we know that God still is at work. I believe that it's certainly a miracle that I'm alive. I've had the experience of three different times the doctors told my wife I was going to die in three different situations, and I'm still here. So praise God, I, I think that's a miracle. Yeah, that, these were good doctors. They weren't just incompetent. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Bob. I just wanted to, to make a couple points. 
I mean, as far as uh, miracles, uh, God can certainly uh, perform them as he wills. But I think we should still make the distinction as far as Paul saying that you saw the signs of an apostle. Yeah, those were those were see, for like, them. In Hebrews too, where you see the God's affirmation and testimony of His authoritative uh, apostles and prophets of of Christ. Yes. And then, as far as the uh, the the test, I've heard this also from like Todd uh, Friel and Phil Johnson at Grace Community Church, where he said if people just looked at Todd Bentley and looked at his character. Uh, and with Phil Johnson, you get a lot of uh, alliteration and assonance and things like that. They, he was a boaster. He was a braggart. Uh, he was a violent man. I mean, his character was, he was disqualified absolutely on every level. Yeah. But you get, you get like Grudem and even Piper being, John Piper being uh, resistant. Well, you know, we don't want to uh, suppress the, the Holy Spirit. You might find, you know, like with uh, Gamaliel, that you're fighting against God. But it's like these men are disqualified on every level. Can't we just recognize yeah, that? They're, they're say, disqualified they're, on they're the level. They're false prophets and false teachers. Yeah, they are. And I don't even think it's an issue. And for that matter, true gospel preachers aren't trying to find out how many signs are going to happen. And I agree, the signs of the apostles are, are unique. And because they proved who they were. And the same with Christ. Nobody did what Christ did. But last time I taught, I quoted a, a guy, one of those pastors I was trying to help, saying, well, Jesus was just a normal man on the earth. He wasn't really God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair. So like we're trying to do a miracle contest, and we don't want Jesus to have any special benefit. Well, then how do the miracles prove his deity Okay, especially the resurrection from the dead, if we're going to say that. So what I'm saying is that the Bible's unique, Christ's unique, the apostles are unique, but we're not saying God is incapable of healing anyone. James tells us to pray for the sick. And we're not saying God never will do this or never will do that. We can't be sure about that. Yeah, the Todd Bentleys of the world are disqualified. So we look at Acts 14. We have a preview of, of another situation where there's a pagans wanting to, to do magic. And then I'm going to quote a guy named Parsons, and I'll go to the next slide. Philip's preaching, says Parsons, a wonder-working ministry are empowered by God, and his motive is neither for self-gain nor self-glory. Simon, on the contrary, is explicitly motivated by his own self-advancement and implicitly as an agent of the demonic. For Luke, this is the difference between Christian miracle and pagan magic. Outwardly, the deeds may appear to be the same, but the source of the Christian miracle is the power of God, not the missionary. The motive for the miracle is to proclaim indeed the coming kingdom of God. Okay, so I think Dr. Parsons got it exactly right. Okay, there's a difference, and, it's, and it'll become more apparent as we go along here. Simon loved the accolades, and he was great in his own mind. So on the surface, if a person, for example, is healed, a healed person looks like a healed person. 
just you can't find out based on the fact there was a healing whether somebody's message is true or false we judge the message by the scripture and by the gospel of Jesus Christ the healing just is so on the surface it could have been that Phillips looked a lot like Simon's but Simon thought Phillips were better that's why he wanted to be devoted to him he, he was going to hopefully be his new teacher Simon thought now here's a word here he had for a long time I have it in blue astonished them with his magic arts the word astonished is rather interesting existami from the prefix x and histami which means to stand and it means to, to sort of be stand beside or stand out and it came to mean something about a person's state of mind to be besides oneself or out of one's mind existomy became the root or the basis for our English word ecstasy so when somebody's ecstatic implied is they're not very rational they're ecstatic now Christianity is a rational if I use the word religion faith and there are people who think that the more ecstatic everybody is the more it's a sign that God's at work but that's not how the Bible sees it this being astonished meant to be out of one's mind or besides oneself Dr. Tannehill and by the way his work I have to give credit where credit's due in the 90s I learned from one of my favorite teachers the narrative unity of Luke Acts by Tannehill was a seminal work on the fact that Luke Acts is a two volume work and how Luke wrote and what Luke means so I've read Tannehill twice and I'm still using Tannehill and you'll see him cited by some of the better commentators but Tannehill says quote religion becomes corrupt whenever humans attempt to use God's power to make themselves powerful or great in human eyes and that's just so true it's it's kind of a truism it's so obvious that we make ourselves out to be great look what I did look how great I am and look at what I did and look what I claim I'm going to do all right so let's go to verse 12 but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were being baptized men and women alike preaching is our kind of a really cool word I've been teaching you Yugan Galizo and we could translate it quite literally gospeling so Yuan Galizo is often translated preaching the good news or preaching the gospel this uh, in verb form Yuan Galizo the, the noun is euangelion euangelizo is used 25 times in Luke Acts which is nearly half of the New Testament usages they believed at a point in time when they heard Philip's preaching aorist active indicative believed so he preached 
they believed. So God had sent us, Acts 1-8, to go forth and preach the gospel. We don't know what exactly is going to happen. On my next PowerPoint, I have a slide about this word decomai, which means welcomed. We don't know who's going to welcome the gospel. And we don't know who's going to reject us. I enjoy the prayer request updates from both the ones for when the evangelists are going out and then report back what happened when they went out. And I was just studying this decomai. We'll get to that in a bit. It means welcome. Who welcomes the word of God? And I saw this thing come from the evangelists. Some people did not welcome you, did they? They, We don't want to hear any of this. Go away. But sometimes people do. Miraculously or amazingly, they actually welcome the word. They're glad to hear it. We don't know who that's going to be. And I've noticed over the 40-some years that I've been preaching, the ones that end up fully embracing the gospel are sometimes shocking and surprising who it is. And sometimes you think, oh, this person's kind of a devout religious person. If we just tell them about Christ, they'll get all excited. Sometimes they get the most angry. No, 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 no. So there is no precondition that makes us know who's going to welcome the gospel. But it's our job to preach it and to make the terms of the gospel clear. So Philip did that, and that's described by this word, euangelizo. Now, how is it he's preaching about the kingdom? And we need to understand that as well if we want to understand Luke Acts, particularly here in Acts. Now, remember at the beginning of Acts, I mentioned this in my sermon last week, they asked Jesus, is this now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is Israel going to have its place ruling over the nations with a king from Jerusalem? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which God has fixed. Now, when I've debated a millennialist, I've told them, God doesn't fix a time for a non-event. The non-event doesn't need a time. It never happens. You only fix a time for an actual event. So if there's never going to be a restored Israel or a kingdom, well, then Jesus didn't tell these guys the truth, did he? But he did because Jesus is God and he cannot lie. And so he did fix a time. But then if that's at some future fixed time, is unknown to us, how is it that they preached the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom? How can that be? Well, Peter does this on the day of Pentecost, and Philip was preaching the good news about the kingdom to Samaritans. Well, let me explain that. It comes with this important concept of already, not yet. Already, not yet. If you read what's taught about the kingdom in Luke Acts as a two-volume work, we know from what Jesus taught that the coming of the kingdom 
is not good news for God's adversaries. Why would that be? Wrath, judgment, right? Isn't that taught in the Gospels? So the coming of the kingdom is like an ominous event hanging over history. But the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus came, he died, lived a sinless life, he died, proved himself to be truly the king, was raised on the third day, taught his disciples after the resurrection even, and bodily ascended into heaven before them. And Hebrews especially claims that Jesus is ruling now in heaven. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. So, Jesus is the king. Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's coming again. Now, we need to be ready for Christ. We need to submit to his reign. So the good news about the kingdom is that Jesus has proven himself to be the king who sits on the throne of David. It was proved in Acts 2. David's tomb is still here. He wasn't raised, but Jesus was. So therefore, we need to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom will come, and you're going to be God's enemies, and you're going to be thrown into hell. That's why repent. You have to submit to the king now by believing the gospel. And then you can say with all of the saints, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can long for his reign and rule. But if you're his enemy, why would you want him to come? Because it's going to be bad for you. Eric, could you do Acts three eighteen through 20? Sure. And we'll see again this idea of the possibility of the kingdom coming and the restoration. Acts 3, 18 through 19? 20 through 20. I'm sorry, through 20? Yes. It says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and then he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Yeah, amen. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Hey, Bob. Go ahead, One point I was going to make is just about the already, not yet. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting is in the gospel of Mark, Jesus makes the point that if the disciples don't understand the parable of the sower, they won't understand any of the other parables. And one of the reasons for that is it's about the building of the kingdom. And what he lays out, he tells them very succinctly that the kingdom is going to be built in an imperceptible way through the receiving of the word. So the kingdom now is being, it's imperceptible. We can't see it, the already. But one day what's imperceptible will be seen by all in the not yet. And so that's what's so shocking is people don't realize that this kingdom is presently being built, as you're saying, through gospel preaching but to the unregenerate, it's imperceivable. They yeah. can't see it at they all. They see it as, well, it never happened, so just ignore the whole thing. Exactly. There's never yeah. going to be a kingdom of God. Yeah. Yep. Now, 
the kingdom is gaining citizens throughout church history from the day of Pentecost on. As people believe the gospel, they become citizens of heaven, though they're still here and are citizens of some earthly nation. Later, when Paul preaches to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17, he's going to claim that God drew out the boundaries of the nations. And he's furnished proof to all men through a man whom he raised from the dead. That's the proof. And so you are living in some sovereign nation whose boundaries were drawn out by God and that you can become a citizen of heaven no matter who you are on the earth. And you do so by believing the gospel. And you may live in some small kingdom with no money and no power and still become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, one of the big lies, I've mentioned this many times and written about it, in American church history, in a persistent lie that Americans have believed is that America is going to be the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, people believe that. A lot. And we need, as Finney said, they claim, to work hard so the millennium will come to America. So the millennial reign is going to be an American thing. And they claim that America has a special covenant with God. I've debated people about that. And they just take that as, well, that's obvious. So then I ask them, how is it that God enters into a covenant that he never agreed to? See, they quote some people who said that they made a covenant with God. They said they did. The Mormons say they did. But they never quote any proof that God ever agreed to it. So how do you have a two-party covenant when only one party agreed to it? For God to agree to a covenant, he needs an authoritative, infallible prophet to speak for him, or he needs to come in a theophany and speak for himself. And Eric, feel free to comment on that. And so I've, I wrote a whole article about this, and I found it. It is on our website. It's about Christian Reconstruction. And they take, they take the Great Commission as proof that we can turn America into the kingdom of God. It ain't working. It ain't working. <laughs> well, the, according to Gary North, history will go on for 25,000 years or 50,000 years, however long it takes. He's one of the... Uh, Theonomy, theonomy, they call it, the rule of law. And so you're going to force unbelievers to obey the Old Testament law and thereby create the kingdom. And these people have, are very intellectual. I've written a lot of books. They have a certain number of followers. If you go find my article on it and read it, I, I used that for a paper in seminary. But this is just a myth. Our national myth is that America is the kingdom of God. That's the big lie 
that we've believed our entire history. And of course, then, Israel has no significance because America is effectively the new Israel. And so those who claim that God is going to restore the kingdom to Israel, like me, these people mock. And they say, I'm the problem because I'm keeping people from working to establish the kingdom by telling them it's yet future. But what I would say is that as long as we're preaching the gospel and people are being converted, which they have been, citizens are being added to the kingdom. And we can preach the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Let me let me show you what that looks like. Turn with me to Acts 2, 20, excuse me, 33 to 36. I'll read these ones. How do you preach the kingdom if it's yet future? Well, I'll show you how. Peter did it. Acts 2.33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Verse 36, Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The exalted Christ fulfills Psalm 110 in more ways than one. Not only has he reigned, in heaven, who was raised and bodily ascended, he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is a high priest in heaven. When, when Eric and I go to Canada, I'm going to preach on the priesthood of, of every believer. And I'm going to claim that Jesus alone is unique as the high priest that every single believer is a priest to God, equally so, and that we have access to the throne of grace, and that the high priest who rules in heaven on our behalf gives us access to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy and timely help, and that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And that there are no prelates, bishops, or church authorities that have the power to rule it over the rest of the priests, us. They're not high priests. They don't have something that we don't have. I believe in the priesthood of every believer. When Luther taught solar scriptura, he equally taught the priesthood of every believer. Modern Lutheranism and Reformed teaching ignores or repudiates the priesthood of every believer, but claims to believe in sola scriptura. But if you question their traditions, they'll throw you right out of the church. I'm going to preach about this 
in Canada. Hopefully, I come back. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm saying that if we reject the priesthood of every believer, we have no way to apply sola scriptura. Luther proved that one of the functions of priests that are privileges and duties of every believer as priests to God, 1 Peter 2.5 and 1 Peter 2.9, and also in Hebrews, is to judge doctrine. But people calling themselves Lutheran or Reformed are saying to the flock, you may not judge any doctrine. So you submit to us, all you got to do is give up your priesthood. Jesus paid for you to be a priest, but you got to give it up. No, they don't say that. They just imply it. Because if you do it, we'll bar you from anything having to do with the church. And so I'm going to argue for the priesthood of every believer, which Luther did at the Reformation because Rome was saying, we're going to excommunicate you and you're going to be lost in your sins because you need priests. And only we have priests. We anoint them. We shave them. You know how they did the head? Tonsured, it means. And he called, they call the priests masts. What does it mean that they're masks? M-A-S-K-S, masks. I had to look that up because I saw Luther talking about it. The mask was what you saw. The robed, shaved, ornamented priest. He was a mask for God himself. God was there through this priest, but he just looks like a priest, the mask. But if you want God, you got to go to that priest. Or you don't have God, and you won't get God. And so Luther said, no, you don't need the masked, tonsured priesthood because the Lord himself made every one of you, men and women, priests to God. And you have access directly to the throne of grace. And you can study and know the Bible. And you can teach the Bible. And you can judge doctrine because God is going to judge you by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're going to be held accountable on the day of judgment. And the word that I spoke, Jesus said, will be your judge in the last day. And you are responsible as individuals who are priests to God to judge doctrine because God will judge you based on your response to it. Can you imagine how Rome loved Luther? (laughs) He destroyed their ability to abuse the people. So you should get a little preview of Canada, all right? Bob, um, I'm over here. (laughs) Way down here. Um, uh, I'm just curious about um, the... um, baptism and its role here yes very Uh, good i like your question all right yeah just you know we talk about repent and believe um i just don't hear as much emphasis on baptism in the order the immediacy you know all of that okay let's let's talk about that notice that those who believe were baptized that also happened in acts 2 right good question by the way Later in church history, the church decided, first they elevated baptism to say baptism saves you, 
Frankly, Luther did that. But see, because I'm a priest to God, I can judge Luther's teaching. I don't have to believe his doctrine of baptism. I do not. But Luther believed baptism saves you. Now, because of that, and maybe, be, I don't know whether it's because of the Simon incident, the church decided they better make sure no unworthy person ever gets baptized. So they ended up with these, well, how do you say it, Eric? Catechumai? Maybe, Adam, do you know how they said that? The cat of the, the catechist, the catechumai? Yeah. That it? Well, I, I no, exactly that's the teaching. We, we call them catechumens a lot of times. Yeah, they were, there was a Latin term for them. And people had to go through everything that, that the church told them. And sometimes it took three years. And they had to agonize and go through all kinds of self-affliction and misery and submit to the creeds of the church or whatever before they're allowed to be baptized. Okay, for fear that somebody would be baptized who wasn't really worthy to be baptized. But in the book of Acts, they baptized everybody who made a response without having to know ahead of time. Mike over here. And I think that obviously we'll find out Simon wasn't a true convert. But see, we can't see the invisible church. Oh, yes. I, I just want to point out like an important verse in discussing these things that can be easily uh, misunderstood. First uh, Peter chapter three, verse twenty-one. Uh, Peter says, uh, speaking about the the flood and uh, Noah and uh, the mm-hmm. coming through. Oh yeah. With the flood, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Yeah. But you, you have to read what, what follows that elaborates, that explains and describes what he means by that. A baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for uh, a good or clean conscience Amen. through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's repentance. And so... Here he's saying that baptism, it's not the physical act, it's not a physical washing, but it's, it's, it's kind of a public appeal to God for a good conscience. And so in faith, people uh, approach God uh, in faith, oh God, please wash me and cleanse me through the resurrection of your son. And so baptism is basically a, a, a figure of this. Uh, it's a, a means of grace that reminds us yes. uh, of what God does through the resurrection right. of Christ. And, and we don't need to totally diminish it either, do we? Because well, we, we, we can not. look back. Yeah, yeah, we should not. When we look back, see, when we have the Lord's Supper regularly, mm-hmm. we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, and we remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us and what are his promises. Mm-hmm. When we're baptized, it's something we look back. And it's not wrong to be reminded. Somebody might be thinking like a pagan. It's not wrong to say, well, weren't you baptized? Oh, yeah. Well, well, what happened when you were baptized? Didn't you die to the old world? Yeah, didn't you go into a watery grave and come out new? Well, yeah. 
So why are you acting like you're back in the world? <laughs> oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. I heard a preacher do that once, counseling a backslider. It's not wrong to do that. I should say it more strongly. It's right to do that. Well, thinking, thinking of the Great Commission, uh, and you, you were talking about that, you know, uh, going, make disciples uh, of all nations, and what does that look like? Baptizing, uh, yeah. baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so, yeah. to be a disciple of Christ is to believe His Word and to uh, to be baptized. That's part of it. Amen. To, to be taught by Him. And it gives us a point. Now, um, Luann over here wanted to say something. Um, it's interesting. We were out with some friends. Diane and I, the other night, in fact, Fredericksons were there, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how we were saved, and Diane and her brother and family and me, the new convert, were all baptized in this church in Sheldon, Iowa, in 1971, and the pastor said, well, I, I hate to have to even admit this, he was a new pastor there, they had been kind of in the very centric kind of group that nobody would go near. And he had kind of opened that up so that the gospel went out to the town. He said, this is the first time anybody's been baptized in his church in over 30 years. <laughs> and so Diane and her dad and I, now her dad, when he dies, he has asked me to do the funeral and it will be in that church. And I plan to tell that story that me, the pagan, the enemy of Christ, was allowed to be baptized with these other believers, with people who loved God. And I'll never forget that. So it's important. Thank you. Yes, Luann. Well, and this kind of goes back to the creed thing that you're talking about in Canada, because, you know, as I was raised a Lutheran, and I can't remember if it's in the Nicene or the um, Apostles Creed, but it refers to, you know, one baptism for the remission of sins. Well, that was just drilled into you as a child that, you know, your infant baptism is the one baptism, and that, you know, is for the remission of sins, you know, and so you, when I then became um, much older, and I was in a uh, Pentecostal church, and they talked about a believer's <laughs> baptism, I mean, my heart was just frozen. I didn't need a believer's baptism because I had been baptized one yep. baptism for the remission yep. of sins. And, yep. you know, that's where that creed kept coming back into my head over and over, and it isn't scripture. It's a creed. And, <laughs> you know, there may have been a purpose back in the day, but it had locked me into that mindset of my infant baptism. And I mean, as a an adult, how do you remember your infant baptism? How does that bring any grace to you as an adult yeah, to remember to, they as give a baby? A certificate to your parents. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, let me say something. I, that pastor, by the way, uh, Reverend Corlew, we have a picture of a coffee house we had that summer, and he's in the picture along with Diane's dad and my brother Wayne and I, and a couple others, and we were bringing people to Christ right and downtown so when I got saved this pastor said we need to be baptized I said I was baptized as a baby he said okay so rather than arguing with me about it uh, he said do me a favor I'm going to tell you what I think you should do read the Bible I said okay I want to read the Bible I was a brand new Christian 
I said, where should I start? He said, why don't you just read the book of Acts? He told me to read the book of Acts. And you decide whether the Bible says you should be baptized or not. You decide. Okay. So he didn't force me. He just told me what to do. So I went home and started reading the book of Acts. And I only got into chapter 2. And they were repentant and they heard the gospel and they were baptized. I came back and said, all right, I want to be baptized. (laughs) But it was the book of Acts that convinced me, not the pastor's strong arming. And I was, by the time I was baptized, I was honored to be able to be one who stood in the same place as even these people in the book of Acts. It's an honor to participate. Yeah, the Lord Jesus. Follow the Lord in baptism, they used to say. I was just thinking, paralleling back to the uh, Old Covenant and the circumcision, which Moses was almost (coughs) killed for not circumcising his son on the eighth day. And then we have this baptism, which, you know, we're commanded to do baptism in the New Covenant. But, you know, I I thought it was a good point when, uh, I think it was in Romans, that uh, Paul was going through how he was saved before he was circumcised, and then circumcision was a sign of it. So I thought that was just a good parallel drawing. Yeah, Eric does some good teaching on that in Romans. Well, Christy, you're, you have prescience. Well, I only had a few slides left on this one, and we have another one all ready to go. And she said, oh, you won't get to it. <laughs> How does she know these things? <laughs> well, I don't mind. See, the, uh, one of the things we're going to do in Canada, I'm going to talk about prophecy in the church in 1 Corinthians 14 and what it is. And for Gospel of Grace Fellowship, before that in the other church, all the way back, as long as I can remember, because I came to believe that prophecy was the flock bringing out the meaning and application of scriptures, specifically to us in our circumstance. It's not a lesser thing. It's not being an apostle or a a new Paul, but it's you may all prophesy one by one and let the others judge. So way back in the 90s when I was teaching these charismatic pastors, we started doing that. And we had it so anybody could question what I said because I was the teacher or they could bring out something they saw. And it's always been the case, if somebody comes up with something that doesn't quite work, somebody else corrects them. And the same with me. I just got corrected. It's not Stephen, it's Philip. (laughs) All right? Now, sometimes it's, it's important like that. This is part of the priesthood of every believer. Every believer is taught of God. Every And so here in this particular class. Now, the sermon, for the sake of doing everything decently and in order, is a presentation by a person. And any judgment would have to happen when it's all over. But during Sunday school, we have a mic or two that go around so that we can do that. Because I really believe this. And so some of you have had experiences with baptism, and you've come to learn things and share them. And that's us prophesying and judging prophecy. 
and we even have an award if you have a really good reading. <laughs> I learned that from Dr. Versaput. That's an astute reading. See, and, I, and I learned from that dear brother in seminary. He was my favorite teacher. I learned how to interpret narrative from him, including Luke X, is that prophecy is about reading and knowing what the author is saying. And sometimes the one that he told me I had a student reading, we were in John 5 when they had to catch a fish, and Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Remember that? Okay, so we were studying that, and I said, I put my hand up. I said, Dr. Versaput, isn't that an allusion to Isaiah? When, when Isaiah saw the Lord, and then he said, oh, I'm a sinner, and I'm living amongst sinners. And now Peter sees the Lord. He said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He said, that's an astute reading. <laughs> I felt so good. Oh, I'd rather have that than a four-point grade point. Oh, an astute reading. So we started that at, in our Sunday school class, and and anybody can have one of these astute readings. It's not a secret. The question is whether it was intended by the Holy Spirit. And I think it was. I think that John 5 was intended to be an allusion to Isaiah. And when the Lord comes on the scene, our first inclination is, I'm really a sinner. I, I may be in trouble here. But no, don't worry. Jesus receives sinners. And we can come to him. And he invites us to his banquet. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to see what you've said and apply it to our lives. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. And we do thank you that you made us priests. We didn't deserve it, but you did it anyhow because you're the high priest and you preserve us and teach us and keep us so that we can pray and praise and learn and teach and do the things you need us to do. Help us continue to be equipped for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we're on verse 13. And I think we'll get to that next one next week.